0: Hello and welcome once again to the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast. I'm your host, Damian Reinhardt. Today on the show, we're going to be interviewing Dale McGowan, who left a 15-year career as a college professor in order to pursue writing full-time. He has since written the book on how to raise free thinkers and how to do parenting beyond belief. He is the foremost authority, as far as I can tell, on secular parenting. And he has also written comprehensive resources on what atheism is. Uh, including Voices of Unbelief, which is a reference work, a very highfalutin academic tome, and the forthcoming Atheism for Dummies, which is a far more accessible work which covers much of the same ground. His fiction works include satirical novels Calling Bernadette's Bluff and its sequel Good Thunder. He blogs at parentingbeyondbelief.com blog, and he is the executive director of Foundation Beyond Belief, a humanist charitable foundation based in Atlanta. I should mention also that he will be speaking here in Oklahoma City on Saturday, the 22nd of June, which is just a couple weeks from now, and we're all looking greatly forward to that. Dale, thank you so much for coming out today. Uh, I'd like to start off by asking a few mundane questions. So do you do a lot of of traveling, a lot of uh, speaking gigs these days? Well, it uh, it
1: varies year by year. Um, I usually do a lot in the spring and a lot in the fall and uh this year has been much lighter which has been great it's uh, uh especially when i've got a lot of writing going on um the travel really takes it out of me and uh, uh mm-hmm. this year has been much lighter but there have been some years when it uh know, yeah, when it gets a little I'm, I'm not a good traveler <laughs> so um i'm better than i used to be but uh um it's it's nice that it's lightened up a little bit did you have to do a, a book tour for uh, a- atheism for dummies no, they really don't do that anymore. It's um, uh, unless you are Stephen King or J.K. Rowling or something like that. Book tours are really economically a bad idea. They, it, it's a very expensive thing to put somebody out on the road, and you can much more efficiently do promotions online. You know, that's mm-hmm.
0: just uh, that ends up being the way to do it. Well, I just figured they were a fun way to get the authors to see all the cities. I, I didn't realize that they were meant to be efficient.
1: <laughs> hey, if that's what it was all about, and they were uh, putting me up in some nice hotels, uh, I'd go for it. But uh, I just don't think they—I don't think they're looking for any ways to spend money without making money.
0: <laughs> well, well, fine. If they—if they, if they want to be like a for-profit business, uh, I know. Well, let's talk about atheism for dummies a little bit. I, sure. I know some people are are kind of put off by like, the concept, the uh, the dummies books. Yeah, but really, there it's you know it's just a catchy title, right? It's it's more like atheism for novices. Uh, yeah,
1: exactly. That's the uh, um, they created this series, uh, and they're very clear in their in their own messaging. This is not really for people who are dummies in general. Uh, it's a sort of tongue-in-cheek way of saying uh, these are people who don't know much about a particular topic and would like to. Just a lighthearted way of presenting that, and some people do get it very serious and put off about it there's one one review just popped up on amazon um the guy said uh gave it one star and he said i haven't read this book nor would i i, I would never read a dummy's book because it's calling me a dummy and he's very offended so <laughs> uh but i think uh, uh you know if you if you can relax about the uh the supposed implication then i think people end up getting a lot out of them
2: excellent is this book uh, geared towards non-theists or theists
1: uh, it's geared to a general audience uh so um but even though it's geared, you know, really so it would primarily be f- people who are not atheists, uh but even so, um it's I intentionally wrote uh so that even somebody who is an atheist will get a lot out of it. Uh it has a lot of Easter eggs in it, you know, a lot of uh uh little surprises for people who uh you know, even somebody like Hemant Mehta, who um, is a pretty plugged in atheist, uh you said he just, Yeah. Um he um said that he just learned a huge amount uh, from it that he didn't know, uh, especially when you get into the history of it. There's a lot of stuff I found out historically that was just tremendously fun to find. Um, Jennifer Michael Hecht's book, uh, Doubt, was a source of a lot of good information, and Susan Jacoby's work. I mean, there are a lot of recent histories that um, have brought a lot of stuff to the fore, so I just put it into a very accessible format for people. And uh, it's, uh, it's also not a book that's intended to convince anybody of anything. You know, its mm-hmm. intention is much more expository. You know, here's what, here's atheism. You know, well, welcome to atheism. Um, and as a result, I think a lot of lay readers, um, have been able to relax a little bit and read it. You know, if they're reading The God Delusion, they feel, um, you know, Attacked. it's trying to convince me. Yeah, they, it's trying to convince me of something. It's attacking my beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was intentionally set out to be something different. You know, nothing in the world wrong with a book that challenges, uh, what you believe. But this was uh, set out for a a different uh, intention, a different purpose, and I think it's
0: worked. My my mother, just take you know an example. She's uh, a bright lady, but she's very Christian, and mm-hmm. she's you know she has no interest in in reading the God delusion or or um, a letter to a Christian nation or or any any book that kind of relentlessly attacks her worldview. Yeah. But I think I could give her atheism for dummies, and she'd be like, oh, so that's what you're really about.
1: Yeah, I, that's actually very much the intention right from the beginning, and I've already had a, a large number of religious readers say, wow, you know this this is for me. It's very refreshing to read something and I've been interested in and I just haven't been willing to take that step of feeling assailed so uh, this has become you know somebody said early on in the process while I was writing it actually said oh I'm really excited about this this is a um, a book I can give to my aunt Margaret you know who really <laughs> she's a nice lady. She's Methodist or whatever, and she just doesn't get what in the world I'm on about you know? um so and I haven't been really been able to hand her Hitchens or something um so this right. is the book that i so that was helpful because very early in the process, I got it in my head that okay, one of the people I'm writing for is Aunt Margaret, you know yeah. this is somebody who is a you know not necessarily a zealot, but just doesn't get it you know, just doesn't really understand what this is about and would like to understand you know what her. Uh, her nephew or somebody else in her family is um, uh, is all about, and that's that's really
0: been gratifying that it seems to have filled that need. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of uh, friendly, accessible, hey, we're atheists, and we're not here to hurt you. Yeah, right. That's, yeah, and I've I've spent a lot of time in that part of the library, and I, I can say that <laughs> there's there is a gap in the shelf there.
2: Yeah. It's way too yeah. confrontational to give them the God delusion.
0: Yeah, well, the whole new atheist shtick was, you know, we're here, we're godless, get used to it. It was very, you know, and I think there's definitely a need for that, but I'm not about to buy those books for Aunt Margaret. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, and the thing is that those a lot of what those books have done is they've empowered people who share the worldview. You know, they've made people feel a little uh, more like they have uh, a groundwork underneath They have an understanding of their own worldview, um, that which is terrific. That has served a phenomenal purpose in sort of energizing the community and allowing people to be comfortable with their own perspective. But there is that additional need, and uh, I'm glad to glad to be part of filling it.
0: So how how did you get pegged for that? Because there's a lot of I, w- I would think that a lot of people would have wanted to write that book.
1: Yeah, I got uh, I got lucky. Um, huh. The publisher went to Hemant uh, to the friendly atheist Hemant Meta and uh, asked for a recommendation you know if you cuz he they knew him by his high profile and said who's a person to write this book and he pointed right at me which I was I'm just tremendously grateful for um he was aware that uh you know it, it helps to have an academic background i was a college professor for a while so i uh, was comfortable with the research that was required and i had written accessibly which was part of the requirement for this and and uh um had actually just come off a, another project, Voices of Unbelief is a, uh, a reference book. It's a hardbound, large-format uh, reference anthology of uh, atheist and agnostic writing. And I had just come off that process. So I had actually done a year of research already, a lot of which I was then able to create uh, a more accessible presentation for, um, so there were lots of ways in which this was just the perfect synergy, the perfect moment for me to take it on, and I was just really grateful for him and to point the point in my direction.
0: Voices of Unbelief had it better be amazing. So I've never seen a Kindle book cost over sixty dollars before.
1: Yeah, isn't that they they, they priced that one? I think that oh, well, first of all, it is amazing. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I think what they're doing in that case is they're sort of protecting the print version from being completely undercut by the e-version, but, you know, whatever. Um, it's I, I would be delighted if it were uh, uh, prized better. Um, the, I assume it's an academic press. It's an, uh, yeah, it's a reference press. So what they're doing mm-hmm. is um, uh, creating something for libraries and university collections, uh-huh. and as a result, it's a very small print run. Uh, you know, whereas, uh, atheism for dummies, you know, typically the dummies books are going to start off with a print run of 10, 15, 20,000 books right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. This had 1500 because they know it's going to, uh, you know, it's going to have that smaller reference, uh, uh purchase base. And to create a hardbound, large format book in a small print run is an expensive thing, you know. So they're on the print run. They're not making a killing um out of that uh, out of that cost and then they end up pricing the e the kindle format to avoid further undercutting that thing. So it's that's a whole world that I didn't know anything about before and I that was an education in doing it. But that's some of the stuff that I talk about in Atheism for Dummies. Like I um talk about the 14th century Inquisition transcripts. These just astonishing things that had not been translated into English until uh, this book, Voices of Unbelief, I had, uh, some of these translated into English. They were only available in Latin and French. Uh, but this, uh, slightly, uh, obsessive inquisitor, uh, in, uh, Jacques Fournier in France, southern France in the 14th century, had all of his inquisition interrogations transcribed. He had a, a scribe sitting there writing down everything everybody said. So, which, to my knowledge, nobody else did during this time. So you've got this spectacular uh, reading, this really riveting reading. Of these people being grilled, over 400 people that he uh, personally interrogated about their beliefs, and can I just um,
0: say "grilled" is such an unfortunate choice of words? <laughs> there.
1: Oh yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry. And, <laughs> okay. But uh, what's interesting about that one? uh... Five people, I think, only five were executed as a result of his interrogations, uh-huh. and none of them were atheists. One of the things that a lot of atheists think that the Inquisition was actually about us—they didn't care that much about us. Uh, Non-belief was mostly just a shock to them, when somebody turned out to be an atheist. But what they were really after were the heretics. It was the Cathars and the Waldensians, and, you know, all these uh, people who were still entirely religious but sort of promoting this other competing team, you know, the mm-hmm. uh, a sect that was going to draw away from the political and financial power of the, of the Catholic Church during the time. Yeah, that makes this time. A lot more sense. Yeah, exactly. So those are the people who they, they wanted. And then every once in a while, they'd be grilling somebody who was suspected of being a Cathar heretic, and they'd find out that the person says, <laughs> I don't believe any of this stuff. Um, so it ends up being really riveting tra- uh, transcripts. But those are the people who would end up having to wear a double yellow cross on their backs for the rest of their lives, or something, a mark of shame for having thought independently. And, uh, but they, they tended not to actually go to, the, uh, go to the stake. The double yellow
0: cross was, what did, what did it signify?
1: That signified a, um, a heretic. I mean, they actually didn't have a symbol for an atheist. So uh-huh. they, uh, it's somebody who was following false gods, uh, would get this double yellow cross on their back if they were not considered to be an ongoing threat to the, the church, the power of the church. Huh. Um, so they'd have to wear this,
0: this symbol as a mark of shame. I'm uh, surprised we've never tried to reappropriate that given our, our dearth of good symbolism as a community. Well, yeah,
1: yeah, that, that actually would be a, um, Uh, an interesting historical one uh, to do. I had heard about the existence of these, I had read about the existence of these transcripts, and the fact that several atheists had been uncovered, uh, including one who was just a riot. Raymond Delaire is this one guy who just articulated uh to the bishop all the um actually his friends, his horrified friends testified against him to the bishop about all these things he had said. He didn't he thought the sacraments were just wine and bread. He, you know, didn't believe that the soul survived the body after death. He he thought that you know, my favorite one is um he asked a friend of his uh um, how do you think Christ was made? And the friend said, uh, "What? How, how was Christ made, Raymond?" <laughs> and he said, uh, "Through fucking, like everyone else." Is what he said. <laughs> and then, and this is in the transcript because the the friend said this. And then the friend also said to emphasize his point, he slammed the heel of one hand into the other several times. So <laughs> <laughs> we still use that gesture. Yes, yes, it's universal. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> That is a a I I adore that idea. First of all, just the pure courage of this guy in a very relaxed way, offending all that's holy. Also, hearing this fourteenth century voice that's just so recognizable. It's just so everyday and normal and just like today. Usually when we see period pieces, everybody's sort of talking in this very stilted way, you know. Yeah. But picturing Raymond Delaire standing on a bridge over a creek talking to his friend and talking about how Christ got conceived. Um, I love that. So I managed to find someone who had done some translations of this for a, a uh, graduate project at San Jose State University, and uh, got her to do these fuller um, transcriptions uh, of the uh, interrogations, and those appear in Voices of Unbelief for the first time. Those haven't been uh, in English up to this point. So its I really think it's uh, worth uh, having your library get a copy of it if they don't.
0: Uh, it's, uh, it's really worth seeing. Excellent. We have a program here where you can you can uh, gift books to your local library. Oh yeah, nice. And um, that's definitely something that uh, would be much more worth it for me than to just you know pick up you know a hundred dollar hardcover for me and then oh, read absolutely. it once. Uh, it, if I could gift it to the local library system, that'd be great. Yeah, that's a great idea.
2: Yeah, that sounds like this. This should be the one text you should read if you want to know more about the Inquisition.
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah, because you, and reading all the heretics and seeing how they, uh, um, you know, how they sort of dodge around the questions or don't, uh, like there's this one woman, um, uh, Guillemette uh, of Ornelac, uh, Guillemette uh, believed that the soul died with the body, was, was her particular heresy, and uh, okay. that the soul was nothing but blood is the way she put it, and uh, the bishop said, well, do you still believe this? And she said, "Oh no, absolutely not." And he said, "Well, when did you stop believing that?" And she said, "When I heard that you wanted to question me." Just <laughs> just I heard that the bishop wanted to question me and that frightened me and so I stopped believing it. You know, that sort of underlines the sort of silliness, the the weird idea of instructing someone to stop believing something, you know,
0: is uh, is just bizarre. So they they really are fantastic reading. That's wonderfully Susan of her to say, oh yes, I'm just, I'm gonna tell you what you wanna hear, and yeah. I'll straight up tell you that I'm telling you what you wanna hear.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, and I got the impression that she just, she just wasn't quite, it was just sort of an innocent, uh, guileless kind of thing to say. It's like, well, I just, I was scared, so I stopped believing that terrible thing. And then his reaction was pretty much, well, good, okay.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the point? You know, they're, that's why they're doing this, they wanna root out the ugliness, well then, you can get you back in line, well then... All good. Yeah, exactly. Get
0: you at least saying the thing that you're supposed to say. Exactly. Well, that's that's a common mistake that we uh, uh, in reasoning to this day. People say, you know, why'd you choose to believe that God's not real? Right. Why would you choose to turn your back on Jesus? I'm like, look, dude. Yeah. If it, you know, if if it was up to me, I'd still believe all that stuff. My whole community yeah. was was rooted in the church. Right? It's not like I, I got to choose turn left, turn right, and make a an active will about what I was going to believe.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's it's really uh, it's a a stunning uh,
0: disconnect in the way that uh, uh, people look at belief so we've covered voices of unbelief which is the highfalutin very academic mm-hmm. anthology we've covered atheism for dummies which I think might well be at the other end very accessible it's lowfalutin yeah lowfalutin uh, yeah. Uh, overview of atheism uh, that's a great range uh, can we get some free parenting advice well while, while we got you here Oh sure. Uh, what area would you like it in? <laughs> what, uh, well, what, any particular? So many things uh, to ask. I've got uh, a twelve-year-old right now, and he's he's Camp Quest age. Yeah. So he's he's spending time. Uh, he's going to Camp Quest. He's um, making friends and stuff. And I want him to grow up to to be a free thinker. I don't want him to grow up to be uh, a- apathetic about religion. Right. I want him to, to really have thought deeply about uh, these problems, about why people believe what they do and why there's the diversity of religion and, and what it means to, to consciously be a humanist or a or, or free thinker. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how, do I, how do I go about – given that we're not you know, immersing him in a religion, yep. how do I give him the chance to th- – see, I had to think my way out of this stuff. Yep. He, he's not going to have that. So you know, how yep. do we go forward?
1: Well, I uh, my strong preference, and certainly the thing that I've done and the thing that I think has worked out really well for a lot of parents, is as much as possible, you do want them to be in a position of thinking their way out of it. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're immersing them in it, but you want them to consider various points of view as even-handedly as you can, because one of the reasons you and I have, like I, I get the impression that your worldview is every bit as confident as mine is. You know, I, I don't have, I don't feel defensive when somebody, uh, attacks my worldview. I don't, uh, uh, feel fearful. I don't get, you know, I, I can just sort of very, um, in a very relaxed way, uh, defend it, explain it. It, it doesn't, uh, um, threaten me. Um, it's also something that's very powerful in terms of affecting the way I see the world. You know, my, uh. My non-theistic perspective changes everything. It really changes just about everything about the way you see the world. It doesn't change whether I'm a good person. It doesn't change, you know, uh, uh, whether I'm compassionate. All those things stay the same, but it creates, I mean, wow, you know, there's nobody running the ship. There's, there's (laughs) absolutely, actually nobody at the, the helm. That is a transformative thing. And it can be, Bertrand Russell talked about the fact that it can be a little scary at first. But that, um, eventually it sort of, that bracing wind wakes you up. That it allows you to see how astonishing the universe is. How much more astonishing and wonderful and precious it is. Because there's nobody at the wheel. And, uh, and, and yet we've got this, this thing. How extraordinary is that? So, um, what I want my kids to feel is, um, first of all, I want them to, to come to their worldview, uh, in much the same way that I had the, uh, the privilege of doing, I, and I do think it's a privilege, I want them to construct it themselves, and to ask the questions themselves, and to not have any, any finished packages handed to them, Right. so it's very tempting a lot of um, atheist parents I know say, oh I really want to I, I don't want to uh, get them exposed to a lot of religious garbage, I, I uh, just want to tell them, okay, we've sorted this thing out, okay. atheism is the real way there's no God, now go from that point, that's you know that's fine. But the problem you're going to end up with is that they are not standing on a solid uh, foundation. Um, they You've handed them something finished and they don't know what it consists of. They don't know why uh, you've come to the conclusions you have. They don't know what the alternative perspectives are. So they're standing on... I just pictured the sort of Swiss cheese foundation that they're standing on if you do that. And they're going to have a lot less confidence going forward than they would if... They place every brick in their own foundation just the way I did. And, right. uh, what a wonderful feeling that is, uh, that very few people have. Most people who are religious believers don't have that either. They were handed Christianity. And do they know why Christianity, why some Christians feel it stands up against other worldviews? No, they don't. And that's the reason they get very defensive. Yeah. When it starts to be attacked, because they ha- they didn't really build it; they had it handed to them. I want to hand my children free thought instead, with a lowercase f, you know, the ability to really interrogate the world freely, and to know that I trust them to think well and to come to their own conclusions, and that ultimately they don't belong to me; they belong to themselves. You know, that's that's where the ownership is. So um, that's something that my kids have. One of the best. Things that's ever happened in my parenting is when my kids actually articulate to me how grateful they are for that. Um, you never imagine that happening. Usually it doesn't get said, but uh, <laughs> twice, you know, they just, unless they're 45 years old and, you know, you're on your deathbed. But um, twice I've had uh, uh, my daughters, one, one time each, say, You know what? Talking to my friends, I realized that a lot of them haven't had the same chance to think about ideas that I have. And I just think it's so great that we're able to ask all these questions and kind of, because when I talk to my friends, sometimes they get really nervous and they, you know, they don't know what you're, what you're doing when you start to challenge whether Jesus was real or whether God exists or all these huge things, where you go when you die. And, uh, to actually have a child say, I just think that's awesome that we've been able to do that in our family. And uh, you know, one of them just at one point said, "You know, I've begun to realize how different our family is." And but you know, at first you go, "Oh, is that okay with you?"
0: <laughs>
1: and it re- and it really was because if you raise them that way, being comfortable with difference, you know, being uh, uh, very relaxed about inquiry. Uh, and curious as hell. That's the thing from the very beginning. I wanted to make my kids curious. and this gets to your your question. How can I, you know sort of put them in a position of of uh, engaging this and finding you know, not being apathetic? I, the right. thing that actually depresses me most, honestly about a religious worldview is frequently how incurious religious people are uh, that I know. They sort of accept general, vague uh, propositions about the universe, and they sort of go, okay, And they're not curious about whether it's true or what the implications are, what might really be true. I was just ravenously curious from a very early age because that's what my parents instilled in me was that curiosity and a a real thirst for education that would help me uncover the way the world really was. I didn't care what the answers were going to be. I just wanted to know them. You know, if God is real, super. I want to know that. If God is not real, super. That's fine. I just want to know what's going on with this amazing place. Mm-hmm. So from very early on, I would point out things to my kids, you know, the structure of a plant or, uh, you know, talk about death or look at, you know, uh, animal behavior, whatever it is, and say, wow, isn't that amazing? And then you add, I wonder why it's that way. I wonder why it's... So you're constantly... Pointing out that there are answers to these things. It's wonderful and there's some stuff that, that is behind it. And some of the answers we know and some we don't know. But isn't it awesome to try to figure out why it's that way? You know, why when you tap a roly-poly it, it curls up. You know, why a deer when you step on a twig it, it runs. Uh, why camouflage is the way it is. Why people act the way they do. Um, if you get a kid Addicted to that kind of wonder from early on and addicted to knowing the answers actually being curious enough to want to know the answers That takes care of 95% of these questions uh, these issues They're going to keep going and keep going until they are satisfied that they've gotten to the truth
2: But do you think they'll like even though you make them curious think they'll look into theology?
1: Well, it's I think it depends on how it's presented um, if you present it as um, just sort of this grotesque thing you know which i think a lot of people say you there's this over there yeah. um i think it's entirely possible that they would just never even look at it and i just think that's a shame because religion i, I think one of the one of the best explanations i've ever seen of religion is that it's essentially a pre-scientific, uh pre-scientific inquiry yeah mm-hmm. that it's uh it's people we are uh for a quarter million years we've essentially had an identical brain you know anatomically this is the brain that we had uh, 250,000 years ago, um, we have a very thirsty neocortex. It feels unsafe to not know answers. You know, to be now we're a little safer in our homes and suburbs and whatever. Until there's a tornado, mm-hmm. um, but um, uh, we can be a little more shielded from the realities that humanity has confronted for most of the time it's been around. And saying I don't know has felt tremendously unsafe for most of human history. You need to know because the universe is trying to kill you, you know, <laughs> all the time. And so in the absence of good ways of figuring out the real answers, we made answers up. Okay, you know what? It's an angry God. It's, a, it's Lightning is, you know, uh, he's, he's trying to send us a message or whatever it is. Uh, that feels safer than just saying, oh, I don't know. We're going to have to wait for the scientific revolution <laughs> in <laughs> 250,000 years. Once you see it that way and start to say, look at all these different cultures and all the ways that they tried to um, ask these questions. It's actually a lot respectable that way. Now, holding on to those answers after they've, um, you know, after we've got better ones, you know, a better way of doing it, that gets into human psychology, it gets into comfort, it gets into confirmation bias, all these things that help to reveal who we are. And if you approach it with a little bit of empathy, which I, I try to encourage, you know, there are reasons that I was better able to walk away from religion than somebody else. You know, there are actually things that I was made to feel safer. I was made to feel that I didn't have to be afraid of certain answers. There are advantages that I had. And so I try to encourage my kids to not be immediately um, contemptuous toward religious people, even if they find the ideas themselves ridiculous. You know, there are actually, you know, some people don't have the advantages that I had in being able to walk away from that.
0: We have eight, well, we have a, a lot of people in our local group here, and I've I've heard a lot of times. I've heard people say, "Well, I don't let my kids, you know, be around uh, the religious people. Yeah. I don't I don't let them, you know, hear these prayers, and I don't I don't let my parents or in-laws do this stuff around them. I won't, I don't even let them hear the word God." And yeah. I think, well, you're in trouble. They're going to be born again as soon as they go to college. You know, I've I've actually seen
1: that happen so many times. When I talk to parents at conferences, um, you know, a lot of times people will say, I remember this one woman just putting it so clearly. She said, I've really got a problem. My daughter has become this, you know, door knocking evangelical. She's 16 years old,
0: mm-hmm. and she's
1: just suddenly become immersed in in Jesus and as as the answer and. And she said, I don't know what that's about. We didn't talk about religion at all. Her entire time she's growing up, she never saw the inside of a church. We never talked about the Bible. Well, what happens then is a kid hits that very normal and predictable sort of crisis of confidence that you get as a teenager. Mm -hmm. Everybody goes through this to different degrees. And um, they don't know which way is up. They don't know what their values are. They don't know who their friends are. And then suddenly one of their peers says, well, do you know Jesus? and hands them the whole solution to their problem on a silver platter. Jesus loves you, and it solves all your problems. And look at all the smiling faces in my youth group at church. And this is not a kid who's going to become some sort of moderate Presbyterian, right? These are the ones that go all the way over the spectrum and become charismatic evangelical uh, fundamentalists. Uh, It happens an awful lot. So I think what you can do is essentially inoculate your kids against... uh, the more poisonous religious ideas by early on exposing them to religion um Mm -hmm. in uh and allowing them to sort of access it and show that you're not afraid of it i think one of the unfortunate messages a lot of kids get is if their atheist parents are sort of saying i'm not going to let you see that i'm not going to let you know don't don't hang out with those people The kids can say, wow, that must be a very powerful thing that mom and dad are so afraid of. You know, it can actually make it forbidden fruit in a way that you don't want. So I have gotten my kids inside. They've seen churches from the inside. We've talked about Bible stories. We've, you know, they've talked to religious relatives. I say, go talk to Grandma Barbara. She believes Jesus rose from the dead. you got my, you already know my position on this. I want you to make up your own mind. Talk to other people. That is a very, puts them in a very different position. And they are much less likely to jump to that extreme they're also much less likely to be successfully um, sort of evangelized into a corner i think that's what a lot of kids get when they're brought up in an exclusively religious environment by saying i'm comfortable with you asking these questions and and looking at these uh, various options that changes everything they're able to actually see these well-articulated perspectives from a couple of different adults who they know and love and then they it it becomes a choice instead of something that you um, you know, have to choose or go to hell. No, I'm saying, but
2: it's, it's that thirst for knowledge as well that they're looking for. You know, when, it, when they've never been ex- exposed to Christianity or evangel, you know, evangelical yeah. thought, they want to. Uh, if they see, like you said, some smiling faces and uh, joyful people, they want to learn all about it.
0: Sure.
1: Yeah, exactly
2: right.
0: My wife and I came from that background. We we came from a youth group uh, here in in Oklahoma. We, actually, that's where we met. And uh, it was it was really great. It was absolutely a f- fabulous vibe. We're all you know in it together. We have this mission in the world. We have something that yeah. binds us together, and you know it's it, it's really an attra- an attractive lifestyle. I can see. Oh,
1: there's just yeah. There's no there's no doubting that. I really think it's it's important to recognize that because too many people mischaracterize the whole thing as being entirely about avoiding hell you know you're going and doing these things because you don't want to go to hell there's it's it's much more complex and interesting than that yeah it's actually uh, in a positive way answering human need right you know this need for community and for support and connectedness and and for positive affirmation and all these things that we all need and uh so to just sort of dismissively say it's all about um salvation uh, i really do think misses the point what you're saying is is a much more um productive way I think of looking at it because then we can say okay how can we help our kids if they need that how can we help them achieve it without the sort of the poison without the theistic stuff that that uh, gets in the
0: way so badly yeah the only things I mean in my personal experience the only things that bound the kids closer together than that shared sense of identity as a Christian was mm-hmm. competing together in sports and that that was the only right. other time where i felt yes. like we're really you know we're in this together and we have this shared sense of identity and when we see each other in the hallway you know we, we, that sport gave us that sense of of uh, you know being on the same team well literally uh, uh, yeah
1: well <laughs> right um that is um there's actually some recent research that backs that up very well um there's a team university of wisconsin and harvard uh, have a joint team that um uh, published in the american sociological journal i think i'm getting that right um, in december of twenty ten i think was uh... was one of the first in a series of articles uh... but they were looking at what people get out of church you know what they actually get out of it and a whole lot of surveys have shown that it's really not primarily about theology mm-hmm. um, it's not even primarily about god it's about uh the social experience of being with other people and being reinforced by other people. And they found out that um, one of the most telling results was these life uh, satisfaction measures. You know, churchgoers are happier than non-churchgoers by several uh, significant uh, measures. And they said, turns out that's only true if the churchgoers have close friends in the congregation. Mm. This is very interesting. So the highest life satisfaction is people who are churchgoers and have close friends in the congregation. Next is non-churchgoers and the lowest of all is churchgoers with no friends in the congregation. Uh, And if you think about it, it actually makes sense because can you imagine going into this environment where everybody knows everybody else and the hugs and all the mutual support and this sort of thing and you're alone. Mm -hmm. It's worse than staying home on Sunday. You know, that would be to have that rubbed in your face all the time. So one of the conclusions they ended up getting as they parsed all the variables was a lot of church going, a lot of the satisfaction is about coming together with people who share an identity and are coming together to do something meaningful. Um, so when they come together and volunteer, for example, um, or they come together and engage in what they consider a spiritual uh uh, moment in the in the service or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. That's the, the ticket. And they said uh, a lot of secular um, expressions um, uh, can get at the same thing. And one of the examples that several different studies have done is, like you said, sports teams are an example of people coming together, they share an identity, and they're doing something meaningful. They're trying to achieve something on the field. Uh, musical ensembles can do the same thing. Uh, clubs certain clubs in uh, um, school or outside of school, volunteering in the community. All these things achieve very much the same human outcome that people are getting from uh, from the youth group, from the church,
0: whatever it is. We've been trying uh, to build something like that sense of community that, yeah. we, that we had. Um, here in Oklahoma City, we've got uh, the Oklahoma Atheist Group. And you know, just to, to give a recent example... Well, a recent future example. This week, we have seven meetups. So there's one this afternoon. It's a fundraiser for wow. free. Okay. Uh, there's one on Tuesday, one on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and two on Saturday.
1: Oh, that's great.
0: <laughs> that's
1: great. And so, and you're probably doing a range of things, right? Sometimes oh, it's yeah. social. And, yeah, yeah, there's a trivia exactly. night,
0: there's a lunch thing, there's a board game night, there's a blood drive, now, see, book club. That
1: is, you're set. Once you do that, you're set. I, I had, um, when I was traveling around, you know, 10 years ago or so, uh, talking to free thought groups th- when I first started doing that. Uh, and some of them would say, you know, what would you recommend uh, for, um, uh, you know, wh- what should we do to keep people coming? Because sometimes people will visit the group and they'll come a couple times and then they leave. You know, wh- are we not doing interesting enough lectures? <laughs> you know, And um, the problem, I said, is that this is what we're primarily doing. We, at, at that point, at some groups are still in this model. Um, people show up, there's a little bit of, you know, cookies and punch or whatever. And then there's a talk mm. and a discussion and maybe a book group or something like that. But that ended up being all there was to it. And that's going to satisfy some people and, and an awful lot of people. That's not what they're looking for. Yeah. You know, one of them was, was kind of funny. Uh, he got very, you know, okay, this is great. So I think what we're going to do for one of our upcoming meetings is talk about, um, uh, the, the research on, uh, on social togetherness and, and you know what that means to people and all that. So I'm like, no, don't talk about it. Do it. You just just <laughs> have a barbecue. You know, get together right and on. just be together. It doesn't have to have a topic focus. You know, what brought oh, you together yeah. is your shared worldview, but you don't actually have to always have a topic. Right. And uh, and then one of the there are all these little tips like you know you want to bring people in who are in their 20s and 30s. Childcare ends up being the you know the thing that a lot of groups found once they started offering something for the kids to do at their meetings, lo and behold, they captured this demographic that had been missing before. You know, up to that point, it was all people in their early 20s and in their 60s. And there was this hole in the middle, you know, people who were raising families. So, uh, so yeah, it's just great to see so many groups now that are, that are doing this, multifaceted things, including social things, including, you know, things that have nothing necessarily to do with atheism.
2: Well, when Damien first started, it was just, uh, a monthly dinner and drinks, you know. But
0: I think yeah. once... And then we were happy if we had 20 people, you know. Yeah, oh like, yeah. 20 whole like, people. A little room. Yeah, yeah.
2: But what happened was you start opening up to the community. You ask them, what do you want to do? But not just what do you want to do, it's like also take ownership, you know. Right. So if you want right. to do this, set it up, and now you're the organizer for that event.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. And that's, that's how right. we end up having, like eventually, we have on average an event a day this month or or maybe a little bit more than that and that's because we've got different people organizing different events so somebody's in charge of the craft the crafty atheists who do you know crafts and somebody else is in charge of the dog park event somebody else is in charge of one lunch event somebody else is in charge of another lunch event somebody else is in charge of caffeinated adventure tours secular shutterbug club <laughs> uh, <laughs> caffeinated uh, adventure tours what is that <laughs> You know, that's one of the ones I haven't been to yet.
2: They just go around different
0: coffee shops,
2: I think. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah, but that's that's exactly right. I,
1: I, that sounds great because then you it's not just the leaders, it's not just two or three people who are constantly banging the drum. Oh, different man. people with different interests have, have ownership. That's great. And they burn
2: out, too. Whenever you have, like, we used to average a president would just take over for a year, but, you yeah. know, you'd burn out and then leave the group almost because it was just so oh, yeah. much work.
0: Or oh, move to Florida, yes. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Nate.
2: Yeah. God, he's
0: listening to this. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there's been a lot of de- delegation, and we have a full board now, so um, w- which is great. So that the, all these roles or all these s- slots are filled. And, yeah. But l- like you said, it it goes back to building these social bonds, and and very few of these events have anything to do with. You know, let's talk about uh, the fact that the gods are still fictional. You know. Right. Which yeah. I find and, interesting and, you know, it... academically, but it doesn't bind people together.
1: No, that's exactly right. But for a long time, I think, people felt that they had to justify the existence of the group by doing, you know, that if we're an atheist group, well, then we've got, well, think about Christian groups. Are they talking about Jesus all the time? Are they talking about Christianity all the time? No, they're coming together. Sometimes they're doing that. Sometimes they're studying the Bible, but sometimes it's just a book club. Sometimes it's just a social gathering or volunteering, and it's just, that's what brought them together. But it doesn't have to be the center of their focus all the time.
0: Yeah, even the Bible studies were usually an excuse for people to talk about their feelings and their problems. Yeah. When they had had small group Bible studies, it'd be like, okay, we're talking about the Song of Solomon, but really we're all talking about our sex lives right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good place
1: to start then, yeah.
2: You know, whenever you were talking about uh, Christians and how they feel insecure whenever they're confronted by an atheist or or just someone with a different worldview— it got me scared for my, you know, my nephew, Damien's kid, like if he were to come across an evangelical and he didn't know what to say, you know, right. that would freak me out.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You want to you want to have some sort of way to converse with that that world. Uh, and it's the other thing is it can be disempowering for your kids if they don't know anything about that world, because the moment somebody presents some biblical analogy or some reference to, you yeah. know, uh, you know Noah's ark or something and if your kid doesn't know any of that they're going to immediately look completely uh they're going to be disempowered they're going to be pushed out of the conversation oh my gosh you don't know anything you know so some they don't need to be talmudic scholars but they they need to have some ability to some understanding of that world so that they can discourse with the rest of humanity and that's an important thing
0: yeah I definitely want to give him a, a stronger background in that on and, and better I let him Go to church with his grandma, with uh, Chad's mom, actually, uh, yeah. and I'll let him go to church with my mom if she wants to take him to church when she's in town. Uh, so yeah. I, I wanted to be familiar with all that stuff, but um, you know, I don't want it to be drilled into him. But I, but I know to have that yeah. experience. Well, you know, one of the things that worked for my son—it's different
1: for every kid—but um, my son was so bored with it. Um, yeah. He the the few times that we went, I mean, he was just. and and we didn't go often you know this when he was young this was once in a while with grandma because you know just doing the family thing and she was at that point going to an Episcopal Cathedral this was Episcopal High Church Episcopal is cool it's really interesting theater you know Mm -hmm. because they've got all the they do the the um, uh, incense burner and the procession in the robes with the holding the golden book up above and the architecture. I mean, if, if you're bored by this, <laughs> that's, then, then the whole thing's going to bore you. Uh, but I remember this one particular time he was about eight years old, and he's just sprawled in the pew, trying to look as bored as he could. Oh,
0: my God, I hate this.
1: And I leaned over to him and said, um, hey, wouldn't it be cool if you could go back in time to like the, um, the temple of Zeus? In ancient Greece and see them and he was really into mythology at this point and see them uh, worshiping and see exactly what they did and he just went oh man that would be so cool (laughs) and I said just imagine you're from the future now and you came back to this time and you're looking at the way they worship Uh, and from that point on he was riveted once it became anthropology (laughs) you know Instead of they're sort of asking him to believe, they're sort of demanding something of him. Once it be, he could step outside of it, he found it fascinating. And he was able to really think of it in, in, uh, in a more sort of scientific way, which was the way his mind uh, worked. And it made it less threatening. So for, that, uh, for, my, for the next child, <laughs> for my daughter who um, is now 15, um, she was interested in the experience of it much more so and trying to figure out how she could fit into this group of people when she didn't really believe. It was always fascinating to watch. Like One of the things that they do is they, the high church Episcopals do the kneeling thing, uh, like uh, Catholic service. And she had to decide whether she was going to kneel or not, hmm. and uh, how that felt. So um, I didn't kneel, and her mom didn't kneel, but grandma did. And so here's Aaron, and she would sort of sit on the pew when everybody's kneeling and then she'd sort of edge forward and kneel a little bit to see how that felt. And then she'd end up in this hilarious sort of half kneeling position <laughs> where she was as close to sitting and kneeling at the same time as you could get. And she's kind of looking around. It was wonderful to watch because she's trying to figure out how it feels to do it and how it feels to not do it. And she was comparing, and then she would talk about this afterwards. She would say, I just, it was so interesting because I I felt kind of uncomfortable not kneeling when everybody was, but then I felt kind of uncomfortable kneeling when everybody was because I don't believe that. And so she had an entirely different set of issues because she's this very social connected uh, person. And um, it's just, it's just a delight to watch kids work these things through. And I think the best thing a parent can do is relax about it. And let them have these experiences and not feel that you have to uh, really be worried that their brains are going to be sucked out by doing
0: it. That's I, fabulous. That, Sorry, that,
2: that, is that is fabulous. Yeah, no, but uh, what I've come across is that people had terrible experiences in their church and they feel like they were emotionally scarred, and oh, so yeah. they don't they don't want to, you know, expose their children to this possibly damaging culture. oh yeah. Well, yeah. Have you gotten a lot of uh, you know calls from people like that?
1: Oh, absolutely! All the time, I talk to people who, and you can, you can really tell early on if someone has been wounded by religion. You know, when I'm talking uh, to them, they um, there's a whole different vibe uh, to it, and uh, I understand it completely, even though I haven't experienced it. Uh, I religion was worn very lightly in my family when I was growing up, and I'm grateful for that. Um, but if somebody really, I boy, I can certainly see how if someone felt deceived and abused and was frightened as a child as so many people uh have been um i can really see how they would feel that way and why just the very idea of taking their kids into that that den of snakes um is gonna uh is gonna really be anathema to them um but what i try to convince them of is you are not putting them in the same situation you were you really are not right uh, because you were in a situation where you didn't have a choice. What you're doing is taking its power away uh, by saying, I'm not afraid of you. And I'm not even afraid to bring my child in and uh, be exposed to these ideas because this child has something I didn't have, which is permission to think independently. Right. Mm. And uh, that they, in the end, if they reject you, um, they're going to do it uh sort of in a way that's not going to leave them wounded. It's just going to be uh, this very uh, um, uh, reason-driven, relaxed process by which they made a choice that they can then own, and they're standing on a foundation that they built themselves. I think it's uh, it can be a very empowering thing, but I can understand that the moment you start to put them them in that, you're seeing it through your lens of having been in a situation of not having a choice and being afraid. You're putting them there. Uh, with a very different set of uh, of rules and,
0: and permissions. Exactly how I want to do it. Uh, we'll see how, we'll see how it plays out. So far, it's been going really well with the firstborn. But uh, good. You know, like you say, they're all different. And how
1: how old is your firstborn now?
0: He's 12. 12. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And I also have a six-year-old daughter. And she's, yeah, she's it's a just a t- totally different personality than him.
1: It's amazing how different they are. I still fully understand, because <laughs> I've always been inclined toward a uh, sort of environmental psychology you know, I, child development model mm-hmm. that were primarily influenced by the experiences we have. But I swear these kids were like they are now, straight out of the womb. I mean, right in the beginning, their personalities were so strikingly different that... Uh, um, you know, it's it, the genetic makeup of each one, I think, ha, it plays at least some role uh, in uh, in those differences. And it's you just you kind of have to relax about that because uh, the lessons that you thought you learned and mastered with the first child end up not applying to the second one. Right. And uh, you know, you never end up feeling the mastery that you really hoped you would you would get as a parent, which you just have to be okay with that.
0: There's an old <laughs> Steven Pinker quip that goes to something like. Uh, uh, there's a technical term for people who believe that children are a blank slate, and that term is childless. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, I, I honestly have to say, um, when I have somebody really forcefully and angrily tell me that I'm full of crap, um, in in you know that usually they're saying I shouldn't expose my kids in any way to religion, mm. that I'm essentially engaging in child abuse, and and uh, you know. Um, I've had bloggers go after me and all this sort of thing.
0: You've had bloggers go after you? <laughs> oh yeah, sure. That happens in the uh, atheist community.
1: Yeah, it, only only to me, not to anyone else. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, it's amazing. Ninety percent of the time, I ask them how many kids they've got, and the answer is zero. Yeah. Um, all the certainty drains out of you when you start to have the experience, and you and you realize that uh, you know the things that just seem so damn clear. Um, beforehand, uh, aren't necessarily that clear, and they may end up coming to different conclusions from me, but they don't present it with the same kind of con- contemptuous, you know, spin yeah. on. it Once they've had the experience, they recognize that there are some things that
0: they might not have known. Right on. So Chaz, you got any more? Uh, got any more questions before we wrap up? Oh, that was great. Beautiful. Yeah, I think we got some really solid advice there, and uh, we had a good time Thank doing you. it. All right. Is there anything else, uh, any uh, final words you'd like to share?
1: Yeah, I don't think so. I'll see you in, uh, in no time now, that's less than right. three weeks.
0: We will wow. see you on June 22nd. Yeah, that's right. And I'll see you again on the 23rd at the Parenting Workshop. Yep, so very good. That's going to be great. I really appreciate you taking the time, man. It's been most enlightening. On behalf of the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast, Dale McGowan, Chaz Stewart, and myself, Damian Reinhardt, have a blessed week.
3: The Oklahoma Atheists' Godcast is produced by the Oklahoma Atheists. The mission of the Oklahoma Atheists is to develop a community of individuals and families who value and promote critical thinking, free thought, reason, and a scientific worldview, and who seek to have a positive effect on the community at large through fellowship, rational discussion, community service, and education. For more information, please visit our website at www.OklahomaAtheist.com. The music for today's show is from the song God is Dead by Jaron Lake and is reproduced here under a Creative Commons license. Jared's music and the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast are hosted courtesy of the Internet Archive's community audio collection, available at www.archive.org. To join discussion about the ideas presented in today's show, please visit our blog at blog.okalomaatheists.com.